story. Uh, well, actually, there's two things that brought this to mind. One is my sister-in-law, Karen, who borrowed a book from me by Schaefer on grace. And she read it like in 30 minutes or whatever. She's a fast reader. And um, and she really spoke highly of the book. Now, I had that book for a long time and I never read it. So I, I started to read it and I realized, wow, this is a really good topic and I need to speak on it sometime. But the other thing that, that made me think of this topic was a, a, a very famous story that we have uh, when we talk to young couples about getting married and uh, and it and and it illustrates this concept of grace in a very unique way so I'm, I'll tell it as an introduction and then we'll get into our texts today um, back uh, around 2005 somewhere in there we were going to finish our basement and I remember very clearly I I was saying to Janet with all the confidence that a dumb husband has yeah I think I can do that and she looked at me and she said are you sure and when she said that she was really meaning for me to rhetorically reflect on the question not to answer yes or no and I answered yes or no and I said yeah of course I'm sure and uh, that was a huge mistake and so I worked on it for about two weeks and I I got uh, you know like 10 percent done it took me forever just to hang a half a wall and uh, and I was so embarrassed. I was so frustrated. And I rec recognized I was way over my head. And I went to Janet and I said, I've made a great mistake. And at that moment, she did something that I'll never forget. She said, um, she could have said, well, you should have listened to me. But you know what she said? She said, well, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And in that moment, I felt the the freshness of the grace of God through her reaction totally engulfed me. That's a small but illustration, a small illustration of the concept of the grace of God that I'd like to begin with today. So if you have your Bibles, what we're going to do is we're going to first of all turn to Titus, because I have five major points that I'd like to uh, um, get to today. And if we don't, we'll just have it as a part two. The first one is establishing the definition, establishing the definition. Then what we'll do is we're going to look at the demonstration of the grace of God. And that's an extensive point. So that might take us the whole time. We obviously have to look at the third point, which is grace of God in salvation. We cannot look at the grace of God without understanding its salvation emphasis. And then fourthly, and I've, I, it's, a, it's not a word I like to use, but it's the only word I could come up with, potentiation. The idea that God gives you strength and energy, might and power through his grace. And then lastly, there's an exhortation. So again, we may not get to all five points today, but if you're taking notes, they are definition, demonstration, salvation, potentiation, and exhortation. So I hope that will give you a bit of an outline. Now turn to Titus chapter 2. And for this discussion today, I've actually put the major portions of the word of God on the screen for you to see. Uh, but I will read it from the text. Now these two texts are set in um, uh, next to each other, although they're in different chapters. So please look with me, read with me. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I'm going to stop right there. Now, let your finger flow down on the page to, to chapter 3. And I want you to read with me in verse 4. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Now, what I need you to see here, and I've, I've underlined it on the, on the slide in front of you. <coughs> Excuse me. I need you to see the phrase grace of God, and I notice that's in 2.11, and look at the phrase kindness and love of God. See that in, in, in chapter 3 and verse 4? I've underlined that for you. Now, notice that they're, they both have a common denominator, and the common denominator is in the second underlined phrase of chapter 2, verse 11, that says appeared to all men. Notice the word appeared. That word, which I failed to underline completely, is also in chapter 3, verse 4, that the love and kindness of God appeared to men also. 
So I would like to suggest that the grace of God has to deal with the kindness and love of God. Now, let me shrink this little screen here so I can see. So the idea of appearing unto men is used twice, once for the grace of God, once for the, once for the kindness and love of God, which equals B, and B equals C, then A must equal C. So the grace of God must be equivalent to the kindness of God because they both point to something that appeared to man. So if the grace of God appeared to man and the kindness and love of God appeared to man, well, then that means that the grace of God must be something about his kindness and love. And that's exactly what's being linked in this verse. Now, I think it's important to understand the two words of kindness and grace. They are giving definition to the kindness and love because they give definition to the word grace. Grace means gift. It means um, something given as a favor. There is nothing that would have been um, uh, uh, draw out my favor. It is a spontaneous favor. It can be seen as a gift. It can be seen as a blessing. It can be uh, seen as a, as a special uh, uh, connection in that regard. All those nuances of the word grace um, are part of its definition, but really it's motivated by this action of love and kindness. Now, the word love and kindness, the words love and kindness, they're important because what they do is they show that God has a spontaneity to himself. That God is, is actually moving himself forward in out of his internal passion. God reaches out out of that internal passions to help someone in need. That's this love of God. It's, it's motivated solely on his own doing. There's nothing that, um, that draws it out. He gives it spontaneously. Now, uh, in my opening illustration with Janet and our famous story about finishing the basement, which is why I like the basement, because it reminds me of that story. Uh, the whole point was it was out of the generosity of her own heart. She expressed that gentle response to me, very kind response. I was in a low state. I was in need. I was feeling uh, defeated uh, uh, and uh, embarrassed. And she came along with kindness out of the love of her heart. See, so it has an internal passion and it has an external expression, an external expression. Excuse me, go back to that. And the external expression is many times seen in the actions of God's mercy. That's, that's how it gets displayed. So when you talk about the grace of God, we're talking about something that's sort of like a gifting, a, a present, a, a, a nicety to someone else that is motivated moved out of my love and passion, my affection for you, the recipient, so that it just doesn't stay in an emotional sort of box, but it reaches out to, to, express a practical demonstration of that love now that's how god sort of orders himself this is who god is on a regular basis and you can see that that this is exactly in contradistinction to satan's original uh, lie about god now i i like to go back to genesis don't turn there i'll just quote it to you but back in genesis satan tried to lie about God's goodness, his graciousness on multiple occasions. Uh, remember how it started. Did God say that you really can't eat of all the fruit that's in the garden, all the trees here? Can you believe that? Again, God being painted in a non-gracious, lovingly kind way. And Eve answers, and then, and then Satan says, well, you listen, Eve, in the day that you eat of it, God knows that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Again, the implication is that God's demeanor has, has nothing about graciousness. It's it's ungracious or ingracious. It has it has it's that God is the exact opposite of what He's portraying Himself to be. So when we talk about this attribute, we are really attacking the very lie that Satan introduced at the garden. 
That's a very important concept because when you look at the plan of redemption from the time of the promise in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the gospel accounts and the epistles, one of the things God is doing is he's constantly talking about his grace. Now, I won't be able to give you the flavor of this in the Old Testament except verbally. Do you remember when it says, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? That word means favor. That out of just the, the favor that God has towards mankind, it struck, it resonated with Noah. He responded to that, right? And so the favor of God was outflowing. I think he would have been favorable to all uh, uh, those who would have lived in a faith-like righteous manner, but there was only one, that was Noah. So the idea in the Old Testament is that it flows freely, and it's just dripping through every facet of biblical history that we have, so that it culminates, the kindness and love of God culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ to its finest, highest degree and level, its greatest um, uh, presentation in Jesus Christ. And so we have this sort of concept of the grace of God. Now let's move forward from the definition. Uh, oh, sorry, just a few more things on the definition. Um, the, the idea in that Titus passage, let's go back to it. Is that God is a giver. Now I'll read, <coughs> excuse me, I'll read some of this. And let's go, go back to verse four of chapter three in Titus. But when the kindness and love of God, of God, our savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. That's another important part later on. But according to his mercy, see how the mercy gets interjected. It moves through. It moves from the grace of God through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the spirit. Notice this. There was a there was an action towards making us whole again. Verse six, whom he poured out to us abundantly. See that word poured out? That's a giver. He's giving without limitation. That's what he's saying. Poured out unto us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been, and here's the word again, justified by his grace, by his loving kindness. So the idea of grace being out of love and kindness, it, it, it shows up in this, this, this giving nature of God. Uh, uh, and lastly, it has this attitude or this aspect of this phrase that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See that phrase, hope of eternal life? He's saying to the listener, to the believer, the grace of God is so extended through the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore salvation that God plans to make it a theme for all the eternal days that we'll have with him. So to, to God, the grace that he embodies is not a one and done thing. Schaefer said in his book, he said, you know, you will never have more grace from God than you have right now. It's all been given. And God will spend an eternity showing you the minute details of that grace. And so we have this, this sort of, sort of, uh, facets of the definition. And it's, it's really quite nice. Now, I, I began to think about this this week because this was a hard week for us. It was a hard week, uh, with lots of changes. Uh, it was hard for, uh, the governor getting out of the hospital and coming home and there's new changes there. It was, it was hard. I was ill. And, uh, that, that was a, a bit of a challenge and, and, uh, pulling some shifts when you're ill, that's a bit of a challenge preparing for the message, preparing to leave, uh, all the different things that have to get in place, getting medicines, ready, uh, pill boxes, uh, beds, uh, uh, handicap ramps, everything. It was a hard week. And I, Sorry, the clock's ringing. I'll give it a second. There we go. And I have to confess to you that, that I needed his grace. I needed to think about the kindness and love of God that would be part of my life. And I, I, I had to search for that. I had to look for that because my natural sinful bent is what Satan introduced at the garden was to disbelieve the grace of God, to disbelieve his love and kindness that would express itself and sometimes that's what happens in our trials and what's what's what the lord is doing is he's massaging your perception and appreciation of his grace he's 
He's bringing it out. He's, he's cultivating it in your heart. So as you might go through the difficulties of life, I would suggest to you that the grace of God is something that you cannot do without. It has to be on the forefront of your thinking because that's how the, the scriptures portray the grace of God. All right, let's move on to demonstration. So let's uh, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 14. Now, the demonstration of the grace of God. This is sort of a big theme with John. It's in the introductory chapter of chapter 1, and then the rest of the of the uh, texts of John, the Gospel of John, gives you seven major uh, miracles and um, discussions that illustrate this grace that comes through Jesus Christ. So it's sort of a subplot to the book of John. So I'll begin reading in the introductory section, excuse me, of John, and it goes like this. And the word, that's Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Notice I underlined that in front of you. We beheld his glory. What kind of glory is that? Well, it's the next phrase. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see how grace is front and center in the presentation or the demonstration of Jesus Christ, of the person of God? It's right there in the middle. You can't miss it. It's, it, it's leading the tip of the sword, if you will. Note in this. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. Uh, for he was before me. Now, I didn't put that verse necessarily up there. That's to basically point out the eternality of the Lord Jesus. And of his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace for grace. This is the opening statements of John the Apostle in his, in his uh, presentation of Christ. And grace is on the tip of his tongue. And notice it says fullness of his fullness that is out of his own being of everything that he is. Grace keeps growing, grace upon grace. Now look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. No one, I'll I'll stop right there for the sake of discussion. Whoops, wrong direction. Oh no, this is right. In terms of this concept, I want you to see a couple of things. Verse 14. That when we talk about the glory of God, that's a big part of the scriptures, scriptural narrative, it, 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 the glory, the, the, the brilliance, that's what the word means, the brilliance of God. He uses two terms to describe it, and this book being more about the deity of Jesus Christ, and he uses the term grace and truth, right? And so whatever it is, we have to really uh, understand our God in, in those terms. So truth has this, um, uh, um, it, it refers to his righteousness. And whenever you talk about right, God doing things the right way, you have to talk about his holiness. You see, because he's holy, he therefore has the credentials, the prerequisites to determine what is right and what is wrong and when you boil that down you have truth that's the concept now that's pitted against this idea of grace that although there is the cold sterile table of truth cuts it straight cuts it square cuts it right there is this loving kindness of god that equally balances his grace and truth or that balances his truth and righteousness and that is perfectly put together, not in writing per se, not not in ink and paper, but in a word, a person. So there was this uh, artist uh, who wrote a song about uh, this this uh, word logos, uh, and uh, it it says this: We speak in so many clumsy words, but when you speak, you speak in one word. And it's and, and that means a three-dimensional word, the Lord Jesus. And so he shows us this, this grace and truth. Now, notice uh, the little statement I made in verse 15, that, that Jesus Christ was eternal. He predated John. That's what he's referencing, this idea of the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that his grace and truth has also been eternal. In other words, 
God didn't just make man and man fell. And God said, wow, I better come up with an idea. I better be gracious or something. And he wasn't gracious before then. God has always been gracious. God has always been full of grace. And he will always be full of grace. So when our little trials of this minute section of time happens on this earth, when when we take falls and we have injuries, the grace of God is not suspended. It's in full working order. It's as powerful as it was at the cross. That's what we keep forgetting. Now, notice this third point. Christ is the source of this grace. He embodies it. He houses it. He puts it in a language that the human race can identify and understand. He's human, but he brings grace and truth. This is why it's important, if not invaluable, to look at the at the life of Christ. You have to. You absolutely have to look at the life of Christ to understand the grace of God, also his truth, but the grace of God, which is our topic. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. <clears throat> there was a moment when everyone was concerned about other things. They were concerned about their tummies, their food, their safety. They were concerned about their selfish agendas. They were concerned about who was going to be the greatest. And in that moment, when an appropriate rebuke should have been given, in John 13, it says, and having loved his own, having loved them to the end, he then got up from the table took off his clothes and wrapped his body with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. It begins with this love of God, love of Christ for his men, and it's extended and ends with about five verbs of action. Got up, uh, wrapped himself with a towel, washed his feet, dried them, washed their feet and dried them. Each one bespeaks of this loving, kind act of Jesus Christ in a situation in which the only thing that should have been said was a tremendous rebuke to the people there, a tremendous, like, what are you guys thinking? You see, that's the grace of God. That's why we study the life of Christ. Now, we also, we also have to, have to think about the grace of God in moments of tremendous human tragedy. One of those was with the man that lost his daughter. You see, the Lord Jesus was contacted. He was going to the, to the house of the, of the father. The daughter was ill. And along the way, another person captured his attention. And we almost get the hint that, oh, oh my, the, the humanity of Jesus is limiting his miracle working ability. Oh, how can this happen? He has two emergencies at the same time. Now, in my work career, I've had two emergencies at the same time. I had two people who needed resuscitation at the same time. And, and it was a challenge to be able to give orders to one room and orders to the other room and switch back and forth. So I have no idea how the Lord Jesus did it, except he did it with poise and grace. And so what happens is he heals the woman with the issue of blood. Somebody comes up with the bad news. Your second patient's already expired. It's, un, it's not necessary for you <coughs> excuse me, come to the house. And so he says to the father, do not be afraid. You see that? I love this grace of God. He recognizes the moment of human tragedy and he steps in expressing, I think, the love of God touching the the hurting heart of a father by expressing the very one thing that was so terrifying at that moment was the fear of the loss of life. And he then uh, raises her from the dead. You see that? You see, that's the the demonstration of the grace of God in living color. So when we talk about definition, it's not only the textual concerns that we have out of Titus. It's the three-dimensional definition that we have in the life of Jesus Christ. And so I I would point you for your further study, perhaps, to think about that as you you read through the Gospels. And and may I make a recommendation that, that it would be wise to read through the Gospels uh, several times a year so that you might 
be able to have a good grasp of the grace of God. Now, back in our text in John, excuse me just a second. <coughs> in our text in John chapter 1, verse 16. I want you to see this. It's very impressive. Of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. So the first phrase, fullness, that means of his own person. This idea of grace, loving kindness of God comes forth. But notice it's a very unique construction. Grace upon grace. It's the idea that one flavor or one uh, variety of grace is replacing another variety of grace on a continuous fashion. So um, I borrowed this. This is from actually one of the commentators, uh, the quote that I have in front of you. And it's the idea of the waves of the sea. Now, if you've never been out to the ocean, it's it's really kind of kind of fun. And you can, and one of the things that Janet likes to do, and therefore I like to do, is to sit on the beach and we watch the waves. And they just come in. And one of the most amazing things about that that little outing is that the waves never just stop. Within a, a, a timely cycle, you will see the wave pattern constantly come in. And what's interesting is each wave is a different configuration than the one before it. That's the idea here. He's saying the grace of God comes in wave after wave, and it's continuous. It never stops. It's perpetual. And each time it'll have a slightly different configuration, but grace will be upon grace, will be upon grace, will be upon grace. And that's what Jesus Christ is. So the Christian life is the same thing. That through Christ, we have this blessing of grace upon blessing of grace layer upon layer upon layer or in my illustration wave upon wave upon wave one replacing the other now when we go through our trials though that's very hard to conceptualize that isn't it it's hard to conceptualize when your body is is hurting when your 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 lungs are burning and uh and and there's more to do. There's no time to rest, right? Those moments of life that, that can be quite painful. When we have uh, things break in our house, when we have loss of life, all those trials, it's hard to conceptualize that this is another wave of grace. We almost want to say, if this is what grace is, I'd rather not have it, you see. And that's what I'd call the old nature screaming out in angry defiance against God. And you and I both know how that works. We'll hear the 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 overtones or the undertones of such uh, defiance in our hearts. And for a brief minute you're, or a second, you're tempted to buy into that. And I would say to you that we have to reprogram our thinking, if you will, through the word of God. Which allows us to say that is a lie. And the truth is. The grace of God is here, even in this tragedy, even in this tragedy. Saints, that's going to take a little bit of work. That's why we, we, <coughs> that's why we develop our, boy, I need to drink another water here. Okay. That's why we develop our times of quiet, of quieting, quieting our hearts before the living God. That's why we develop our times of, of rest in the presence of God, because that's where we have that fresh appreciation of his grace, that fresh appreciation of his, of his love and kindness. And when that begins to shape our spectacles to view everyday living, then those waves of trial are really waves of grace, aren't they? Question is clear. Have you, in moments of trial, failed to quiet yourself in the presence of his grace? It's called a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of I'm going to make your life miserable. It's not a throne of let's see how we can torture you today. It's a throne of grace. A throne of grace. And that throne is designed to give you grace 
in time of need. So my question is, the, the application question is, have you been to the throne of grace? Quiet your souls there. Many times we're overwhelmed with the worries and our minds are racing about all the what ifs and what if this happens and if that happens and all those what ifs that haven't even occurred yet begin to dominate our thinking so that we are unable to actually appreciate the grace of God, which would pervade the situation, would diffuse it. My, my friends, that's, that's the key about this grace to taking it from a concept of definition to a point of life living. I would love to confess to you that I've mastered this. I am the worst, the absolute worst of seeing the grace of God and moment by moment living. My wife, she's pretty good at it, but I'm not so good. And I appreciate her demonstration of Christianity because it, it, it so portrays what a person can do when they know the throne of grace. I want to know that. I trust you do too. All right, let's move on. Uh, let's see what time it is. Oh boy, we'll move on here. <clears throat> the last point to be made is just the contrast between Moses and Christ. It says there that Moses uh, brought uh, the law, verse 17, in grace and truth through Jesus Christ. He's just saying simply this. There is a transition that's happening. The law has that representation of the truth, the cold sterility of the truth. Uh, the soul that sinneth shall die is the kind of the, as the, is the uh, dogma of the law. And then there's grace. And it's grace is added to the truth, if you will. Grace is highlighted now in the new covenant. All right, let's move on. Demonstration. I want you to turn to Ephesians. Now, I, I have to tell you, this will probably be the, the last major point of this morning. I know what you're thinking. You only made it through one so far. How can you make it through two? It, it's just that I don't want to skip these. I want them to be very, uh, I want them to be treated well. So let's look at Ephesians chapter one. And uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse five through 14. If you have your Bibles there, let's read. It goes like this. Having predestined us, oh, sorry, let's back up to verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And notice the phrase, in love. You see that? Isn't that part of our definition? Loving and kindness of God has appeared. Having predetermined us to adoption, as sons, notice that, as sons, there's a very specific endpoint to this predetermination. By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And notice this phrase, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, you will find that that phrase in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, is repeated two more times in this paragraph. And by the way, when you structure it, it is all one paragraph from basically verse 3 to 14, 14 and it's a, it's a cascading paragraph. It builds upon itself. Now, that phrase, to the glory of his grace, some people think was a, uh, a stanza of one of the early church hymns, and thus he incorporates it in the uh, text here. All right, let's move on. To the praise of the glorious of his grace, by which, by what? By the grace. He has made us accepted in the beloved, accepted in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, more details about what it means to be accepted. According to the riches of his grace. There it is again. That's the second time. Grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, made to abound, superabundant having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Oh, that sounds like grace, right? The spontaneity of the passion that was exercised that we saw in Titus chapter 3, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation, at the right moment, at the right time, of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. What does that imply? Up to this point, not all things were one. It was all 
sprayed out. It was all dissected into multiple components as the, as the Tower of Babel illustrates. Both which are in heaven and of which are on the earth in him, in him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance being predetermined, predestined according to the purpose of him. There is a predetermination because he had a certain goal in mind who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What, what, what counsel? What are you talking about? That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of the glory of his grace. In other words, we're supposed to be this megaphone that highlights his grace. Now look at this. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Notice this, this sort of conclusion language of the text, that the Holy Spirit is now putting the final stamp upon you. A Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purpose, possession. Look at what it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Do you see that? You see all that? Now, I... I Put it on the slides, and I'll, I'm just buzzing through those, so I don't want to get you lost. But let's look at some observations of this demonstration, okay? Uh, number one, Paul in, emphasizes the necessity of speaking well, that is the word praise, of God's grace in, chapter, in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. Notice observation number two, that this grace is mentioned a fourth time. So four times in a matter of about nine verses, an average of roughly every two verses. In verse 7, he alludes to it also, and he says it here. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. A little bit of a different emphasis, as if to say, God does not run short of grace. I've got so much of it, I don't know what to do with it. The storehouses of heaven are are, are too full. That's, that's kind of the concept. Uh, it also implies not only is there an abundant quality, quantity, but it has an abundant quality of worth. It's worth something. You know, sometimes we say, well, I want to be gracious and, and the kind of the act of kindness is so pathetic. It, it really doesn't show love at all. It's, it's, it's more of a token. Well, that's not God's grace. God's grace has a quality to it that is a, a rich and, and saddled, um, infiltrated with love and action that go together. Now, also notice it's it's uh this word grace is put up against the phrase good pleasure of his will directly stated in verse five. So verse five says grace having predestined us to the son, adoption of sons to the to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Excuse me. And it says so in verse nine. It says the same idea, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure. Now, what does that tell you? Well, that's this idea of the definition. It comes out of the love of God's heart. He has a goodness in mind. He has a wholesomeness in mind. Make that contradistinction between what Satan said about God's heart. So God is the exact opposite. He's got this good will. It's all very, very good. It's all very, very upright, upstanding, and looks out for your benefit. It's good, as we talked about in weeks past. All right, and uh, it's indirectly stated in verse 11, where it says, in him we also have an inheritance having been predestined according to the, the phrases purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And his will is already identified as good pleasure. So that's the third thing. So grace of God is pitted, is connected to this idea of the goodness of his will, that he's thought this all together. All right, now let's look at a couple more observations before our time runs out. This is a long one, so I want to go through it carefully. The phrase in verse six to the praise of the glory of to the praise of his glory is right next to this word. Let's see, predetermined or predestined. Now, what did he predestine? He predestined a certain state, a state of existence, and that's called the adoption state. Now, in Greco-Roman society. When you are adopted, there's certain 
kinds of things of adoption. And, and the adoptive tone here is to be received into the family as a full um, child, as if they were already born of the same DNA, right? If you're born of the same DNA, uh, you, you sort of have rights as, as, as one who, as an heir. Now, if you're brought in without that same DNA, you know, you may be treated as a, a we say in, in today's language, a, a stepchild. But to be treated as one who was blood born of the same DNA, now that moves you to a higher status. That's the status that is being stated here in Greco-Roman society. He's saying, I predetermined you to be of a full son status, as if you were born, uh, 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 how do we say, out of our own, uh, our own bodies. That's how I'm making it. That's how I determined that this would go for you before you were born again. I determined that would be your endpoint. Now, that implies as a son, as a full adoption state, you would have from God great favor, that he would lavish you with favor, acceptability. It's uh, the acceptability you would have as a first-degree offspring, right? Uh, you know, somebody who's directly related to the parent. You see, in a court system, when you have an inheritance situation, usually those closest to the deceased are the ones that have to make the decisions, and those who are the next level from the deceased they have less of a say and so on. Excuse me. What he's saying here is you have that position as first degree relative. Now, the King James and New King James says accepted in the beloved. That's the idea. The other translations, like I think NASB and ESB, they, they don't say that. But it seems to indicate that the New King James and King James might really capture the intent that God has predetermined that you would be in a position of highest favor as my offspring. That's grace. Because look at where we started. Well, we get that in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins who walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And we were basically rushing headlong down the waterfall of precipice into, well, hell itself. And God took us from our state of, of destruction and made us the most favored of all people in the universe. That's the grace of God. Now, notice the next thing to observe. To the praise of the glory of his grace in verse 12, let's look at that. We who first trusted in Christ to be, should be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 11, excuse me, I should have read verse 11. Being predetermined according to the purpose of him. What purpose was that? I think that was the adoptive purpose. That we, that in all, all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be the, uh, to the glory of his grace. He's saying, listen, I want you to know that you are predetermined. Let me just read this. Oh, yeah. God has predetermined us as unto an inheritance. It extends the idea of verse 6, right? I'm sorry. I should have been referring to verse 14 there. My apologies. I wrote the wrong verse down in my second point. Uh, let's read that. Let's start over. It says this. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of our purchased possession to the praise of the glory of his grace. The praise of the glory of his grace is related to this magnificent inheritance, not a partial, not 10 percent, 20 percent. But the fullness of God and all that he is gets deposited on you as a full-fledged son, a full-fledged daughter. This is how the grace of God works. It holds nothing back. And God was so wrapped up with this idea that before the plan of salvation, the redemptive story was instituted in the human race, he already thought to do it and made sure that was the end point to redeem mankind. That's what I think this idea about predetermined is. It's, it's this, this predestined is this idea of God thinking it all through so carefully that he makes it so that his redeemed child is at the highest level of spiritual appreciation possible. That's what he does for you and me. 
Now notice this is in direct contrast to what Satan says about God. And he not only says that about God, he not only accuses God, right? He accuses the children. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he does that in so many ways, whispers in our ears, you're not worth anything. You don't have any value. You, you, you're just, you're just a styrofoam piece of life that will be discarded and God doesn't care. How is that true when we look at this text? That God thought about this plan long before there was the human race. And when the human race came and God, and man would fall, God had already predetermined what the end point would be when the redemptive story was complete. How does that fly in the face? How does that, how does that mesh with Satan's story? Well, it does. It, it totally refutes it. And so when those little, uh, voices or words or thoughts or feelings come in about, well, I'm, I'm just not who I am and I'm, 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 I'm really not special. Well, I would say to you that you are also special. In fact, I would say to you that you are oh so acceptable. It's a lot of our, our lives, isn't it? We walk around and we, we feel like we just don't measure up. We just don't have it. And the truth is, is that we don't. That's the, that's the problem. It, it actually has truth to it. And, and yet when we're saved, now we have the acceptability. So it's like we're operating on the wrong set of facts, aren't we? The new set of facts says that your acceptability in Jesus Christ is par excellence. There's no better acceptability. And that needs to become our normal way of thinking. And that, uh, that hurts us when we, when we live in a fashion in which the demonstrated grace of God does not saturate, drip from the minds of our souls. All right. Finally, I'll just make this last point, the idea of inheritance, which I, I, I think I messed up in my notes uh, of the intention of the believer to claim it. All three usages are exa- ex- all three usages in this passage are designed to exalt his grace to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's like that early refrain. And we see that in several of our own hymns today. And and so you get the idea Paul is, is wanting the believer to exalt the grace of God. It, it's, it's intimate with God. It's part of God. It is God. And you are just, it's like he took you into the the mixture of the cake, the cake mixture of heaven and sprinkled you in it so that all the particles of grace surround you at any moment in time. That's, that's what he's doing to you and me. Now, I think we're getting close to being out of time. What time is it here? It's 11.30. Do we end at 11.30? Kind of. Okay. What a dilemma. Okay. I'll do one verse and we'll stop there. Okay, Acts twenty twenty four. Well, I hope this um, series gives you a better picture of who God is, because I find that the world is screaming in my ears that my God is a small, teeny God that is only a crutch that I need, as if I need a a, a pill every day to get through the morning. And that's not true. My God is part and parcel of everything and his character is magnificent and i was created from him for him and by him so everything that i have everything that i am is of god therefore i need to know my god and not let the voices of the world the little voices that creep into my soul rule me now, this idea of grace is embedded in the gospel. So let's read Acts 20, 24. Paul is speaking. He's talking to the elders uh, at Miletus. They're the elders, the Ephesian elders. They had traveled from Ephesus down to Miletus and Paul's journey back on his, on his missionary journey home. And as he gets to the end of his discourse with the, with the elders there, he says this. But none of these things I... Excuse me, but none of these things moved me. Now, what, what was he talking about? Well, that he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. This is very similar to what he wrote in Philippians. I don't count any of this dear to me. If I die, I die. Uh, to die is gain. That's what he's saying. He's saying, nor do I count my life dear to myself, 
so that I may finish my race with joy. What, what joy? Well, notice he's going to mention the grace of God and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the good news, the gospel of the grace of God. You know what he said? See, the word gospel is, uh, is the idea of, um, of good news. And so it was used like of Caesar. Caesar had a child. We have good news. We have good news. Caesar has had a baby boy, you know, that kind of thing. So good news. Paul uses that term and he says, we have good news. We have good news. We have good news of God's grace. Why didn't he say of, of God's judgment? I mean, sin was judged at the cross. Why didn't he say of God's, uh, of, of God's mercy? Because the grace of God is the platform in which all that other stuff comes from. And so I would say to you that the grace of God is is actually part and parcel of the whole plan of salvation. So when we talk about salvation, we have to know how the grace of God is interwoven in the plan of salvation. And for that, you have to tune in next time when we do the series because I'm out of time. Well, I hope this has been a blessing to you today. And I'm sorry I can't be with everybody in person. It's always much better that way because right now I'm speaking to a green dot, but I trust that uh, I trust that the Lord will bless his word to you. So let's pray. Our dear father, as we come to you this, this morning and the grace of God is on our minds and on our hearts, we would like to just ask you to expand our own souls to take in more of the grace of God, uh, uh, to expand our own hearts and our minds and our emotions and our, and our, thinking to to contemplate the grace of God not just not just today but but tonight and tomorrow and in the middle of the night and when that trial is heavy upon us and when when it seems as if the distresses are so distressful we want to know think believe hold to be strong in the grace of God so we ask that your spirit would do this in our souls please bless the assembly bless the activities this evening Bless each soul to find themselves thinking about the life of Christ, thinking about grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.